0: Hi and welcome to Cartwheels on the Sky, Poets, Poems and Discovery. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and for the next 30 minutes, you're going to get a glimpse into the poems and process of Ukiah poet Teresa Whitehill. Before I share our conversation, I want to tell you a bit of Teresa's background. California poet, letterpress printer, and graphic designer, Teresa Whitehill served as Poet Laureate for the City of Ukiah from 2009 through 2011, and has been involved her entire career in the production of poetry readings and literary events. Her interrelated focus on literary and graphic arts came out of her study of book arts at Mills College in the early 1980s. Since 1984, she has lived in Mendocino County, where she is well known to local poetry audiences. Her collections include A Grammar of Longing in and Natural History of Milltowns* 1993, both published by Pygmy Forest Press. Sadez, her culinary poetry collection on which she collaborated with chef and author Shannon Hughes, was commissioned and published by Stag's Leap Winery in 2003. Her poetry and letterpress broadsides are in numerous fine press collections, including the Getty Center for the Arts, the John Hay Library of Brown University, and the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley. More information about Teresa Whitehill can be found at her website, coloredhorse.com. The interview you're about to listen to was recorded earlier this week.
1: All right, so I have Teresa Whitehill here with me on Cartwheels on the Sky. And Teresa, why don't you start us off with a poem?
2: Okay, thank you so much, Blake, for having me on. I really am
1: looking forward to this.
2: So um, you. for the past months, you know, I have been, uh, when I couldn't go swimming at the pool, I started bicycling on the uh, the rail the rail trail, they call it here in Ukiah. So it's a, a fairly newly paved trail that runs along the railroad tracks all the way from north of town down past the airport. And so it, it was really good timing for that. Um, and so I began a series of poems that have turned into a collection called Wildflower Graffiti. So I'm going to read my first poem. It's going to be kind of a poem that uh, sets that up and it's called honestly what's that cat sight at dawn dog barking it's July a warm summer evening this night someone strolled down the railway path singing Santa Claus is coming to town I wheel my bicycle out onto the tracks and pedal after him a bit of graffiti that persists in the roadway is one that took me a while to parse Beyond, always have respect is a bit done in similar lettering and color with small decorative ornaments on either side of the word loyalty. Then, beneath that, in a different, less artful lettering and a different color, are the words honestly. What's that? The vowels have been eliminated, and the what's ends with a Z in that shorthand developed by the vernacular of the text message honestly. What's that? These two scraps of words have remained while so much else has been painted out. I never do see the, gri- the destroyers of the graffiti, the municipal tagging erasers or painters out. They must do their work in the cool quick of the early morning. And in the mil- milieu of the railroad tracks where encampments of street people spring up and grow and spread and then are dismantled within days, Make- made of broken off, cast offs and appropriated shopping carts and bits of metal and old plywood, Respect is something palpable. Judgment is something that is a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. Respect is something that can be extended to all and sundry. But yes, loyalty is complicated. It requires an object. Loyalty to what? Loyalty can attach itself to unsavory purposes or ideas as much as to righteous causes and persons. In itself, it is a bit amoral. There can be loyalty to false causes. History is full of those disquieting episodes, jaundiced freedom, equivocal justice, love that shines with no object. It is dawn, nearly the end of July, the days are long. It is the end of the wildflowers and the approach of the season
1: of thistles and hardy, drought-stricken, bleached afternoons of season, such a right moment when that recognition is made, and I feel like we're there right now. We had a gentle rain last night, so it feels like September. It's moist. There's a smell in the air, and it's so mm-hmm. lovely, and I remember what it felt like when we went from spring to summer, so yeah. thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Did someone really sing Santa Claus is coming to town?
2: Yes. So my bed, my bedroom is right up at the back of the building, and it's right up against the railroad tracks. And it was, you know, a night in July. And we often hear people going down the railroad tracks carrying their boombox so the music gets louder and louder and then fades away. And here was this there
1: was this guy coming along, singing away. It was really funny. He's cracking up. So why don't you talk a little bit about yourself and how you got into poetry, also what you do with it now. So I've written journals
2: and been been writing since I was about eight years old. Um, and I had a really fortunate childhood. I had a, a friend who was very close to my age, and we spent like every weekend and all summer together. And we used to collaborate on a lot of stuff. We used to publish a neighborhood newspaper and and do a lot of story writing together, and we wrote plays and produced them and all of that. You know, this is all before we're the age of 13. Then in high school and college, I got more into learning about, you know, other poetry. I got introduced to E. E. Cummings, and um, which I remember having a huge impact on me in high school. Um, after my first year of college, in which I was studying to be a forest ranger, um, I, say I was <laughs> pretty good in science and math, and that was what I thought my calling was. I ended up taking a a semester off and traveling to Europe, and something happened to me there. I um, visited Granada, which is Lorca's hometown, Federico Garcia Lorca, and learning about his life and his death and who he was and also beginning to get a sense of the regard that that exists for poetry and poets in, in Spain. And eventually, in my travels in Portugal and Greece, I saw that same thing where, you know, I would tell people would find that I was a poet, and I would find that they really listened to me in a completely different way that was very intense. And it was an experience that I did not have in my home state of California. I really got a sense of, you know, people were listening to me for something important. And there was a lot of respect conveyed and responsibility, actually. I, I suddenly got a grasp of the responsibility of the poet and something, something that just really is not in focus um, right. where I grew up. And so those, that time in Europe, I came back from there and I realized I was not going to be a forest ranger, although I, love, I still love natural sciences, and study. I, I read a lot of nonfiction. I'm currently reading this lovely book called um, Heaven's Breath, The Natural History of the Wind,
1: hmm.
2: by Lyle Watson. It's, it's just fantastic. Wow. And so a lot, of, a lot of science and biology make its way into my, into my work. But that was sort of a big turning point for me. And then when I came back, I sort of pursued that in various ways. Uh-huh. And, eventually um, started learning printing technologies, uh, typesetting and letterpress printing as a way to publish p- poetry. And then I got further into the craft and, of bookmaking and papermaking and binding and all that kind of stuff. So I've ended up with this real dual focus of craft and sort of history of bookmaking and poetry. It's been a pretty fun ride.
1: Well, that's it. And you do bookmaking for other people too, right? Correct,
2: yeah. Mm -hmm. I design and produce book covers and I do, you know, all the typesetting. I do entire book projects um, as well as help people with copy editing. And, you know, I do oral histories with people. I interview and edit that way. So I've always continued to produce my own poetry on my – I have a – Vandercook Cylinder Press here at the studio in Ukiah. And um, my husband,
1: Paolo, and I uh, often produce pieces here. with And beautiful broadsides. I mean, Mm -hmm. everything is so artful and gorgeous that you do. Yeah. So the nice thing about what you do is there's still very much a market for it. I'm sure that you saw, as with this whole blossoming of the very inexpensive ability to print things, it probably impacted your business, but I would imagine that it's come back around the other way because of the fine quality of what you do.
2: Yeah, I you know, I think the the access the access to and availability of less expensive publishing has been really great. So what it does is it leaves, you know, leaves room for you know, my type of work when someone wants something really special. They want, you know, like I I have a publishing client in Berkeley who commissions me to design and print letterpress broadsides and so most recently like this year we printed a couple of Gary Snyder's poems and I've done Jane Hirschfield and we're working on a poem um, of Ellen Bass's right now uh, we've done um, you know I've done about 18-20 broadsides for him so it's that's been really fun is uh, getting an opportunity to work with to kind of design around and work with poems of of living poets um, who are, you know, it's, it's sort of his take on his favorite of many well-known poets. Right. And then I, you know, I'll also apply it to my own work and occasionally will collaborate with a fellow poet or a fellow artist or photographer or something like that to produce something together. Why don't you share a poem? Okay. I will read a couple of pieces they're they're not long pieces I did a, a collaborative project over the past couple of years with the artist Paula Gray um, from she uh, lived outside of Yorkville in Anderson Valley and she came to me last year with a, a idea for a project and um, we, it's uh, called Prescriptions for Life and she had found a 19th century Medical prescription ledger, this beautiful um, book with thousands of pasted medical prescriptions in it, you know, all little squares, different mm. colors of paper. And all, uh, because it was from the 1890s, it was beautifully mellowed with uh, aged uh, browns and old blues and pinks and things that so was really fabulous. So she created collages from those. And then I studied the whole, a little bit about the history of medical prescriptions. And then she invited me to just riff off of that, to just um, create my own prescriptions for things, which is kind of how I took to it. So this is called Prescription for Anxiety. When I get up in the dark and made up my bag, Washed my face at the small basin in which I had also peed the night before. I saw that I had bled on the sheets, those beautiful white sheets that the monks had washed, starched, and unfolded over the mattress in some ritual of hospitality and welcome. The relief I felt was so immense, I forgot to be embarrassed or ashamed I knew they would know what to do.
1: Mm. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and then um, this is a prescription for baby girls. I continue to lie in the darkness. The darkness surrounds me. In its velvety soft cush, I remember that last night when I stood up from the table where my friends had gathered for a dinner, I had begun walking toward the east when a small hand reached up and I took hold and together the two of us walked down the row of vines, careful to step around dirt clods, the 18-month-old and the 60-year-old, naming each thing we came across in a kind of call and response, rock, rock, rock dirt clod uh, dirt hole look a hole see how big it is we need to step around it like this behind me in the golden light at the end of the afternoon laughter bright spirits at a table under the tree pizza boxes evidence of the human puzzle I continue to lie in the darkness with this small but sufficient scarf to cover my wounds. My belly throbs with its usual sensations, as if a sun or an orb of great darkness were inside of me pushing to get out. This has always been with me. For perhaps the first time, I realize that this will be with me for the rest of my life. Not just myself with all my quirks and panics, and if not quite panic, maybe is just majestic energy waiting to be let loose.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like your little girl voice, too. That was really sweet, <laughs> that feeling of the majestic energy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that and magic, the, you know. That magic that's inherent in little girls. hmm <laughs> That we all work so hard to get back, and that's why little girls can really bring that place out in us, right? <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah
1: there's a sweetness and an openness, and uh, I want to see that image that inspired those poems. Mm. yes,
2: yes, well, and some of this some of these were images some of it was fun doing this project with Paula because we would really um bounce off of each other quite a bit, and uh-huh. I would go visit her in her studio, and we would sit at her kitchen table. And just talk for hours about mm. everything, mm. Um, about the project, and then about all the segues, the tangents. We just followed every every little bit. And um, so sometimes I would send her a piece of writing, and it would inspire the title for one of her collages. Or sometimes mm. she would she gave me a list of of titles at one point, and that inspired a whole series of poems. And then I went to her studio one day and just hung out with her collages. It was just me and the collages. And I just spent hours there just existing with them. Which is one of my favorite
1: ways of studying things. Right, just getting the inspiration. Mhm. Yeah. That willingness to enter into that co creation with all things is so profound. And I think as poets we get to do that for fun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, I remember. So I remember the day that I was at Paula's studio, and she came in after a few hours because she was just checking me, like see if I was okay, because I was just being very quiet in there. And I had taken a, a lot of her uh, um, collages; they were <clears throat> collaged overboard, um and which were sort of, you know, they had a thickness to them, so I could actually stand them up, and they would they would stand. And I had stood them all up. And she said, Oh my God. <laughs> so she came in, and instead of lying flat on the tables, all her collages were like stood up all over. And I said, Not yeah, I needed to activate them. <laughs> and I found, found that when they stood them up, they, they activated. <laughs> <laughs> and she said she left them like that in the, in the studio after I left for a few days. Because right. They were, they were different.
1: Yes, yeah. She yeah. saw them differently, too. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. That's wonderful. Um, I'm just curious, has COVID impacted your poetry? Have you found yourself shifting differently with changes we've all experienced in our lives as a result of COVID?
2: Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, and part of me, because, uh, you know, I I love giving readings and I love interacting with other poets, my poet community, my poet brothers and sisters, um, and and with audiences, and I love reading on the radio. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, and now this new form of doing a lot more video and audio, um, but the the work gets written in a very different space than that. And in a in a strange way, it was like it was sort of a relief that I didn't have to go out and be in public and be meeting people. That I was required to stay home, um, and I guess for a, a lot of um, introverts they have may have experienced some parts of and especially in areas like here, where frankly we were so fortunate we were not in one of those areas that right. was just frightening and scary with the infections, so we we actually had this luxury of almost it was weird because you would feel the danger and the and the You could feel the surge, the historic turning that we were part of, and yet it was all very quiet. It was like kind of eerie, but once I got used to the new routine, it, it had this element of putting me right in that space where I wanted to be, and so I began, you know, upping my ante on a lot of things. I you know, I started bicycling down the railroad track. I, I started um, emailing my, you know, with friends. I developed a, a correspondence with one of my poet friends that I would do every morning, and it became a ritual that I would do every morning, that uh, we would exchange emails and send each other poems and stories and things like that. And um, so I just sort of poured myself into those kinds of things, and then um, I have I manage a business with two employees, so I was also needing to safeguard their sa- you know their health and safety, and mm. um, so they started working from home during that time, and still
1: are, and will still likely on. continue to work from home into next year. Right? Are you finding that them working from home is that perhaps this is going to keep happening, or do you like having everybody in to be present in this in your in your office, in your space?
2: i I really like being able to see them in person. Mm-hmm. But I also kind of like this idea that we could was something that we had wanted to do for a long time was was really we have we have the know-how and the technology to work from home effectively. But we never had the motivation to set it all up, and so now we were forced to set it all up. And there's still things to be worked out. But suddenly, the idea that if and when we have more freedom to move around, you mm-hmm. know, when we get a, a leg up on this virus, um, that we could travel, you know, mm-hmm. my em- my employees included, that they wouldn't be required to be tied to a physical
1: place, yeah. It would let them have more freedom in their lives. I think that's something that everybody's feeling. Did you write any particular poems about this? Have you kind of captured any of this in writing?
2: Um, well, so my, I uh, some of this is captured in my wildflower graffiti poems because mm-hmm. it became this meditation. Uh, first, because for one of the first times in years, probably since I was in in my early twenties. I got to watch the whole succession of spring wildflowers, right? And and then at the same time that I was bicycling and and noticing, you know, okay, here's here's the lupin, here's the poppies, here's the wild radish, uh, here's the chicory, and now the star thistles are coming. There was also just that wealth of graffiti and um, tagging art that exists all along the railroad track, right? So I started reporting on that, noticing that, kind of making lists of the graffiti, noticing when it, what got painted out and what didn't. And then interwoven into all of that are these reflections and thoughts about, you know, this sense of urgency and strangeness uh, right. um, about the, the virus and the,
1: just this historic turning point that... Uh, This way of life we've all taken for granted. We just thought this was what is, and we're now going, whoa, whoa. whoa." (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would like to do two things, is let listeners know how to find out more about you and your poetry, and then after that we'll conclude with one more poem from you. Okay. Yeah,
2: so um, people can go to my website, and that is... Coloredhorse.com. That's uh, colored horse, as in a carousel horse. Mm -hmm. C O L O R E D H O R S E. And um, if you, my name is on the on the bottom of the page, and click on my name, and it and they'll lead you to my poetry section, Um, and also lead you to links. um, I keep I maintain a monthly poetry calendar of events. In Mendocino County, poetry events, and either in the county or Mendocino poets out in the world. Uh, I'm working on a separate website for myself, which should be available later in the year, um, too, because so, I've got some new stuff to
1: put up. Perfect. But
2: that's a primary, primary place.
1: So a short poem.
2: Okay. This is called Cinderella Shoe Virus. And then down to the end and back past them and over the street interchanges and on toward the airport. So I come to the stretch that parallels Wa Lane between Gobi and Talmadge. I see something in the path ahead, an object, a shoe. It is about the right size, has a triangular shape on one end and a bulbous shape on the other that could be a heel. When I get up close, it resolves into a crushed aluminum can with the word monster stenciled across it in an antifreeze green. A monster shoe for a monster heroine, heel of metal, toe of crushed aluminum. Where is her other shoe? Then it came to me that at this time all things, the goods, the objects of the fairy tales and legends and stories, the portents of our dreams and reveries would begin to show up, abandoned and neglected, released from the world of the story and magic into the realm of the everyday where they would be disregarded or treated as garbage. No one is paying attention to the fairy tales, so they are coming to us. Freight train on an empty track, brittle usurping of the books neglected or relegated to shelves as decorative votive items, assessed for their color palette, texture, and inevitable knitting of the light. We will come upon a 20th century version of the Holy Grail made out of crushed aluminum, of Peter Rabbit's blue jacket, the ruby slippers of Dorsey, and eventually, if all goes well, they will come true, the way a windsock trues itself constantly to the direction of the wind. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you so much, Teresa. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate so much all you do for poetry
2: in this county. Back
1: at you. Our county is rich with some amazing individuals and poets. Mm -hmm. We're so blessed.
2: I know. It is so true. It's a time for all of us to stay close and keep speaking to each other.
0: And that concludes Cartwheels on the Sky featuring Ukiah poet Teresa Whitehill. Thanks so much for tuning in this evening on KGUA Willala. Stay tuned for more amazing programming. And you have a wonderful evening and definitely share the love. Some